my name is Bernie. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, I work here at BBC uh, in the production and services and stuff like that. Um, tonight, like Kayla mentioned, we're wrapping up the prequel series that we've been going through over the last number of weeks. Um, so if this is your first time being with us, you've come at the end, but that's okay, because the way I'm going to do it tonight will make everything else make sense anyways. Um, but uh, I hope you all had a wonderful Easter as well. Um, can I get a little bit more house light so I can see the beautiful people that we have here in the building tonight? That's right, all you beautiful people. There you are. Uh, let, show me your hands. Who of you went away to Easter camp last weekend, maybe? Yeah, they're very quiet because they're still recovering. Hey, hey Ben. Uh, and how many of you came through our Easter services last weekend? Awesome. And then hands up, how many of you who ate way too much chocolate last weekend? Good on you, everybody. There's not many, only Caleb, huh? That's good. Um, but yeah, so no, uh, tonight is the last one of the prequel. Uh, the prequel, of course, being the journey through kind of the Old Testament, exploring uh, those stories that kind of go through there that lead us up to the arrival of Jesus and, of course, everything that took place at Easter. Um, so tonight I've called it the aftermath because what we're doing is we're actually looking at those moments directly after Jesus has just died. Um, and we'll kind of look from that in terms of where from that point on uh, what do we do? So uh, to set the scene, uh, we're going to take the viewpoint of the disciples for a little bit. So Jesus has just been crucified uh, very publicly. Uh, everybody has seen it. Everybody's aware of it. The disciples are in disarray. They don't know what to do. Um, so they're kind of gathering together in these little, these little groups and discussing and dis talking about what they're supposed to do, whether they're supposed to escape the city um, or not. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jesus starts appearing. He's resurrected and he just kind of like pops up. Uh, in these different meetings and reveals himself uh, to his disciples as being alive again. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look through uh, Luke 24, uh, verse uh, 36 to uh, 48, and then jump over to Matthew uh, 28, 16, just for a little bit of context as to where uh, things are sitting with our disciples. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, so feel free to pull out your phones and look at it on uh, your Bible app, or uh, feel free to just listen to my lovely voice. Um, so Luke 24, 36. So while they were still thinking, talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, let's pause there for a second. So you're having a meal. Say you're having lunch at the workroom of your, your work establishment, and you're talking about, I don't know, how good the warriors are doing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus appears in the room with you, and he's like, hey, peace be with you, man. I think it's nice that the line after it says, they were startled and frightened. I bet someone like Thomas let out a bit of a scream or a bit of a, ah! but um, carrying on. Uh, so they thought they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while I still not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, hey, do you have anything here to eat? Again, really hilarious. Like, Jesus, come on, that's, that's funny. Like, boom, hey, peace be with you. And then, hey, do you have anything I can eat? Um, anyways, moving on. Um, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Uh, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. All right, so we're just going to leave Luke there for a second and jump across to Matthew. Uh, So this happens a little bit afterwards. Uh, The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is kind of the disciples' last moment with Jesus, because before they really realize, he's boom taken in a, in a cloud or whatever to, to heaven. He's gone. So imagine being a disciple in this scenario. You've, you've just witnessed this guy that you believe in. He's been crucified publicly. He's come back to life. He pops up in your lunchroom when you're not really expecting it. And then you're kind of like, okay, this is, I'm, can get, I can get used to this, you know, randomly apparating Jesus. I can get used to that. And then he's like, hey, go and make disciples of all the world. And then he bounces. He says, like, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to send you a helper, but I'm, I'm going. I'll catch you later. And I guess the disciples might have been thinking, okay, he's going now. Maybe he'll turn up later around dinner time. Who knows? Might want another piece of broiled fish. Um, but as we know, he doesn't. And so uh, the disciples, they, they listen to what Jesus say. They go and they hang out in the city uh, immediately after Jesus has departed, and they're waiting. Um, they're waiting for whatever's supposed to come next. So I'm going to talk. Uh, I'm going to jump forward to the book of Acts, uh, which has been written by Luke as well. Um, and so just to set the scene there as well. So they've been they've been waiting for a while. They're in this room, and I imagine like while they've been waiting, they're having all these discussions about Jesus, about his ministry. Maybe reflecting on some of those golden days of ministry where they brought people back to from the dead or, and healed their crippled boy. Um, but they're also probably pondering that question: What did Jesus mean? by go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. I mean, that's a pretty hefty task. And for a bunch of average fishermen disciples, uh, it's it's asking a lot potentially. And so they're having these discussions, and I'm sure Peter's, you know, giving all the good wisdom, directional kind of things, like maybe if we break into small groups and go out this way and go that way, we'll be able to take over southern Israel. Um, But uh, so they're having these discussions, and all of a sudden, Uh, Luke writes, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They came out of the house speaking this way uh, and quickly a great crowd gathered and thought that this group was drunk uh, because they were making this incredible noise. Uh, But as we see quickly, though, the members of the crowd recognized that this drunk gang were actually speaking their native languages. Uh, Amazed and confused, the crowd grew even larger as they were astounded by the fact that this group of local fishermen somehow were now able to fluently speak a wide range of languages. As we continue to read, Luke writes about how Peter then actually gets up and gives the first post-Jesus sermon. So Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. As if that justifies the drunk. Anyways, um, uh, no, this is what's spoken about. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter goes on to unpack uh, the story and the history that leads up to Jesus, kind of connecting all the dots. The story of who Jesus was and why he died and what he did and that he came back to life so um, all who do call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he finishes his message with this. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number in that day. Pretty good first day out for the old disciples, right? But um, it, just, it just shows it shows a number of things. And, and these are things I want to reflect on tonight. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, confused myself. Um, it's good. It's good to see this, like, because there's a few things I want to draw out from this. The first is it's it's good to understand that these disciples had um, grown up, kind of knowing the stories and the histories of things that we had been looking at over the last few weeks. For a lot of them, they would have grown up with as parents telling them the stories or learning them at synagogue or just being aware of the history of their people. Um, and so a lot of the stories that we have to try and learn ourselves now, they would have grown up knowing because it would have been part of their, their culture. Um, and, but, and, but once what we see there, especially with Peter in terms of the way he's speaking, is there's this extra authority. And that, of course, comes from the Holy Spirit um, you know, coming upon him and filling him and him able to connect all the dots and draw things together and be like, boom, I can now, I now understand enough and I can preach about this. And the Holy Spirit, of course, gives, gives him the authority in that situation too. Kind of unlocking that bigger picture um, and able to tell the story of who Jesus is in a bigger context. As we see, uh, the disciples would lead people to look back through history and be able to see how God had been working away in the past and that Jesus' arrival, his death and resurrection was the fulfillment of all that had been promised. That he was the king they were waiting for. It was a different kind of king to what they had been expecting. And we see this again and again throughout Acts with these early disciples and their movements. Um, I would encourage you, I'm not going to go into all the stories tonight because there's so many incredible ones, but 
actually go and have a look. And the amount of times the disciples were kind of like linked together this bigger history that we've been looking at over the last few weeks and use it to you know, establish who Jesus was and the, the significance of what he did is quite a common kind of trend through there. Um, in particular, I love Stephen's final uh, message to the people who are about to stone him. He just lays it on them like it's an it's a incredible thing. Um, but it, it just shows the importance of kind of understanding that bigger story and how God in us can use that. Um, but I guess for us to help us recap, for some of us who may not have been here for all the weeks, um, I'm just going to run through quickly uh, what we looked at, what God was kind of saying at that time when we looked at it, and then how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those Older Testament stories. So I'm going to look at each of those. So the first one we looked at was creation. So looking at the Jesus narrative. God created us. God created us and wanted to have a relationship with us. We screwed it up. Jesus reminds us that we're still, you know, a precious thing of God. That we're still a child, we're still created by him, that God still wants us. Second week, chosen. God chose to, you know, to work with us even though we had rejected him at the end of creation. Jesus reaffirms and says, hey, I'm here because God hasn't given up on you. I'm here to make things right again because God chooses to be in relationship with you. Exodus, God led the Israelites out of captivity. Jesus laid down his life to lead us out of our own sinful captivity. That leads us into kings. We rejected God and placed ourselves on the throne. We tried ruling. It didn't go well. We're not very good at making decisions. Jesus comes and says, hey, let's put the right authority back on the throne. Let me lead. It leads us to temple, the week we looked at that, where God chooses to dwell with us. Again, we had this incredible age of these temples where God's presence was in a building. These high priests would go in to meet with God, and a lot of the time they didn't survive the encounter because God was so incredibly powerful. Jesus says, God wants to place a temple in your heart. And if you choose to allow him in, he will dwell with you there, here, in your heart. And then finally, just before Easter, we looked at exile, but how our choices matter and there are consequences. We saw this with the Israelites. They constantly chose to reject, reject, and reject, and that led them to a place of exile. Jesus offers us the greatest choice. Ooh, getting some sweet pops and bangs, eh, Logan? Jesus offers us the greatest choice, a choice to return from exile, whatever it may have been, and return back to what God wants and how he wants us to be. So I want to transition to us and how we can you know, draw lessons out of what these early disciples did. Because I think, like the disciples, it's important for us to know the bigger story, for us to go back again and again, revisiting those stories, picking out the little, the little nuggets of goodness out of it, seeing how it fits into a bigger narrative, uh, and be able to piece it all, all together and see it in context. Uh, even if it's in like a, a slightly simple way, just like I talked about just now, kind of like seeing how those different key moments kind of all came together and were fulfilled through Jesus. Um, but... Not only did these disciples know the bigger story, uh, they actually knew who Jesus was. They had gone to live with him intimately for three years. 
we get to see the recordings and the writings and things of his public ministry and a little bit of insight into those little conversations that happened as the disciples. But imagine all the other one-on-one chats the disciples would have had with Jesus. I mean, could have gone up to, hey, Jesus, tell me again about this whole seeds thing. Because I'm not quite getting it. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Or teacher, what, what do you mean when you say that the first will be last and the, the last shall be first? I mean, how does, that, how does that all work? I also would have found it fascinating how kind of Jesus discipled and molded them and shaped them, but at the same time did accountability with them. Like how many times he'd be like, hey, repent, like turn away from that completely. Come on, let's turn it around. You're going the wrong way. Let's go this way. Come on, let's, let's, just, let's just get back on track. And like how he would work with them and, and, and help grow them, even in the capacity where they weren't able to understand everything yet. They're only able to understand like a little bit. And, and Jesus is kind of intimately working with this, this group of, of, of disciples. At the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would have known how it all pieced together. Not only the big story, but how Jesus, what Jesus' heart was like because they had been with him for that intimate time. So they knew Jesus intimately. They trusted him. They found him true. They knew his heart and his mission and the significance of his sacrifice. They could see it all kind of laid out and together. So how do we, in today's world, move forward? I mean, we have more opportunities than ever to respond. I mean, if you look around at the world, things aren't that great. There are a few things going on. And I want to show you some pictures um, uh, drawn by a guy called Pavel. He's a Polish-born uh, political art satirist and philosopher. And what I find really interesting about these images is actually uh, what they say about secular, the secular world that we live in, in terms of this guy's not a Christian at all, but I love his perspective on, on the world. Um, so here you go. So here's some nice illustrations. So uh, over on the left, you see like these kind of, they must be immigrants or something like that, like here, selling you a, a picture of what is actually just out the door. Or... This is a bit, of, a bit of a sensitive one, but it's like we feel like praying is just a way of getting what we need or our devotion equates to God giving us stuff like an ATM does. Got some other ones here about the importance of breaking free from cellular devices, how Wi-Fi is seen actually as an escape, how the media can paint something horrific or set something up horrific even if it involves their own kind. How it feels like death is just playing a game with all of us. How if you poke your head up from the crowd, it can easily get mown down. This is quite a relevant one recently with the old Facebook privacy thing. How we can be trapped to our Wi-Fi. How we try and paint a fake sun onto the pollution and the darkness of the world. I just find these very interesting. In terms of the, their perspective. And what they show us about the world that we live in. And it's quite sad. But I look at these at the same time, and, I, and I, I, the question I ask myself is, how can Jesus speak into these different situations? How could he speak into these different opportunities? I mean, from what we read about Jesus, he stood up for the underdog. He fought for us to be able to better ourselves. He loved the unlovable. He showed us grace and compassion and understanding. He fought against injustice, made us aware of our pride, 
operated in a way where God directed him always, looked after the sick, and journeyed with a bunch of lame disciples that he had to keep on correcting, just to name a few. All of these things sound a lot like the cure to a lot of the problems we see in the world, right? Jesus' worldview was radical and transformative, but the question I have is, are we seeing that in the world today? Why, and this is a hard question, even when we know that Jesus is the answer, are we silent? There are a few reasons that come to my mind when I ask myself this question. What the life that Jesus calls us to is challenging. It's countercultural. It fights against our selfish, self-promoting core. We naturally like having ourselves in the throne and living the way Jesus proposes for us to live has a cost. It puts others ahead of us, and that's a hard pill to swallow. Another reason is there's baggage. Many names are attached to being a Christian. I mean, how many times do you cringe when a Christian gets interviewed on a news program and they start saying something and you're just like, please, please just stop. There are many other titles attached with, with, the, with the name Christian. Things like anti-LGBT, hypocritical, judgmental, inactive, being all talk with no action. Another reason is that there's a cost involved. Jesus' message was a radical one. There were riots when he preached. And the religious leaders of the day tried to arrest him and kill him, and they did. And Jesus says, expect the same, if not worse. But most importantly, the reason I feel at times we don't see that kind of radical transformative change in our world is because we've lost sight of the truth of who Jesus is and what he fought for. We've made our Christianity more about our activities and our slogans than a transformative truth of who Jesus is. Activities and slogans we've created that aren't necessarily born of what Jesus wants us to be doing. Monica this morning shared a great quote by Billy Graham and it slammed me so hard I thought I'd share it with all of you tonight as well. Billy Graham said that if you remove the Holy Spirit from the early church, so those things we read about in Acts, 95% of its activities would cease to exist. He said that if you remove the Holy Spirit away from the modern church, 95% of its activities would continue as if nothing happened. It's for heavy, eh? It's, in, it's interesting because I... And I was just sitting before I came up before, I was thinking about what David Pierce said to us a few weeks ago about those pigs in our lives that kill. For those who weren't there, it's like the pigs represent things that kind of distract you or you focus on or you end up worshipping that aren't actually Jesus. I'm switching? All right. All right. So I was thinking about what David Pierce was saying the other week about the, the pigs in our lives that we need to kill. And like, and our mind instantly can be, you know, the negative things, uh, the, gr the greed, the pride, uh, the lust. Those are the pigs we need to kill. But I think actually in our day-to-day -day Christian lives, there are other pigs that can crop in and get in there that we don't realize. 
I remember in my last job at a church where I was an assistant youth pastor, I got to the point probably my last year of employment there where I was basically doing the going through the motions, doing the things to justify the paycheck rather than actually following Jesus in in what I was trying to do. If I'm really honest. Jesus had kind of taken a back seat in my ministry and I had been like, I can do these different activities. I know the right things to say. I'm good to go. I had lost sight of that core central truth. Because the thing is, you know, you can be a good person in this world. You can fight for social justice. You can fight to aid the poor and not have anything to do with Jesus at all the entire time. These are all good things, but our faith is not supposed to be based on what we see other Christians do or what the local church does or what this Christian celebrity does, but on Jesus. When we believe that, when we have a revelation of, of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, all these other things will flow out of that. We'll be aligned correctly. Jesus will be our center. Jesus will be the core of our faith. And if we believe that, then we chase after the life of the world that Jesus dreamed this world could be, and that's how we live in the aftermath. I feel like it's too easy for us to get caught up in slogan Christianity that ends up blurring the real reason Jesus came. Caught up in the acceptance, Jesus loves you side, rather than the call to action side. Repent, turn, follow me. Jesus was confronting. He challenged the culture and the way of life completely. We need to be aware of our history, us needing to be rescued time and time again. What happens when we're in control, when we're in power? We aren't great at making good decisions. And we see this again and again through the stories of the Old Testament that we talked about over the last few weeks. Those first disciples weren't perfect even though they had been around Jesus the most, but they are aware of our terrible history and how it leads to a deep need to have Jesus lead the way for him to be the core. We need to remember all the things that Jesus taught us. Yes, what he spoke to us when he was here. Yes, he talked about loving your neighbor. Yes, he talked about how the last will be first. Yes, he talked about uh, being kind to the less fortunate. Yes, he talked about all that, but he also talked about repentance. Turn, follow me, let me lead, lay down your life, lay down your dreams, kill your pigs, let me rescue you from your selfish motivations. I was recently reading about Spencer Chamberlain, the, the lead singer from the band Under Oath. Um, he was talking about how Christians had treated him so badly that it had led to him losing his faith. And while part of that is definitely true, we can be terrible to one another. I think at its core, Spencer had lost sight of what Christianity is supposed to be like. He had lost sight of the truth of who Jesus was and what he had taught. My good friend Ben Pierce uh, recently wrote an article about this, and I think he sums it up really nicely. I have no doubt Spencer has been hurt by Christians. I have too. But to make this the sole cause of his rejection of Christianity... But to make this the sole cause of his rejection of Christianity is an oversimplification. His concluding statement in the music feed interview reveals that, that there is more to the story. He says, I'm trying to love everybody, whether they be atheist, Christian, Muslim, etc. I don't care if you're gay, straight or trans. I don't care at all, just as long as you're a good person. 
I love good people and I don't care what you believe in. That's why I wanted to get rid of the title of being a Christian band because that's such a stupid category to put yourself in. We never sang about it in the first place, so what's the point? You can come to our concerts and believe in whatever you want. We want to make music that everyone can listen to without feeling restricted. It's apparent that beyond being angry about how he was treated, Spencer no longer believes in biblical Christianity. He didn't leave his face solely because of the behavior of others, but because he no longer agrees with its absolute morality or exclusive claims. This is not uncommon and is often the unseen cause hiding behind the accusation of being hurt at the hands of those in the church. Frequently, if you dig a little deeper, you will find that this is a rejection of basic beliefs held by Christianity, not by the behavior of other Christians. That is truly at the root of someone's departure from the faith. Christianity in the world today has become more of a political or social economic identifier than that is a set agenda rather than a descriptor of Christ's people chasing after the world that Christ wants this world to become. And that is why people like Spencer are in part, is the, is the part that they're rejecting. Imagine that someone approaches you and tells you and a hundred other people that about a dietary plan that cures all diseases. But none of you manage to follow it perfectly. Everyone compromises and cheats, including you. When you fall short, the others judge you and treat you harshly. And after a while, you decide that you're fed up and you abandon the diet. Does this make sense? If the diet delivers as promised, you would be foolish to reject it on the basis of the performance or judgment of others. An encounter with the true Jesus is transformational. It changes everything. The thing that people today are rejecting more than ever before is all the extra stuff of attached to the word Christian, and that's what they can't stand. So how do we set a new definition? How do we do this? How do we live out the aftermath? We look back. We reflect. We clear out all the baggage and go back to who Jesus truly was. That he came so that all who believe in him shall be set free from the consequences of sin and have eternal life. It's fitting that as we finish tonight's series and we finish this message tonight, we're going to be taking communion. And as we go to take this communion together, I encourage you to ask yourself these questions. Who is Jesus to you? What are you basing your faith on? Are you believing in a faith based on the actions of others or some slogan or activity, or are you trusting in the truth of who Jesus really is? I want you to take communion uh, when you're ready as a response. Maybe you need to find a space in this room to work through these questions. Please feel free to do so. There's plenty of space down the front, but also out the sides. And we also have people here who would love to pray for you as well if you, if you need that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and I'm going to invite uh, a pad to be put on, just a little bit of ambience. And then in a while after we've had some time reflecting and taking communion, the band will come out and, and finish us off with a final song, but that won't be happening for a while, just to provide you with the time to you know wrestle with this, wrestle with the things we've talked about tonight. But as we go into this time, I just want to read a couple of scriptures to you. The first comes from John 3 and it's one we all know. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done, seen what they have done and, and been done on the side of God. And then Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given him thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it with you, with you, uh, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When you're ready, come and take communion. Reflect on those questions. Who is Jesus to you? If you ask yourself those hard questions, what are you basing your faith on? Are you believing in a faith based on actions of others or some other stuff that isn't actually just Jesus? And, you know, it's good to ask these questions. And this is probably the perfect place to ask because we're in God's presence right now. And if you need these answers, if you need a revelation of who Jesus is tonight, he's more than willing to give it to you. Just ask. So when you're ready, communion tables are just down here at the front, both sides of the stage. Come, take communion in your own time. And the band will come in in a while while and, and finish us up.